You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to The Corbett Report podcast. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan, here on the 11th day of June, 2012. Now, right off the top, I would like to welcome back all of the audience to this podcast and thank you for tuning in once again. For those of you keeping track at home, this is the 230th episode of the Corbett Report podcast and the first one for over a month now since I went away on vacation. So thank you for tuning in once again. And if this is your first time listening to the Corbett Report podcast, you can find all the previous editions of this podcast at CorbettReport.com, along with all the radio shows, interviews, videos, articles, and other media that I've created over the past five years. And for those of you listening to the radio show over the past week, you will uh, no doubt already know that, yes, now the Corbett Report is five years old and counting. A minor milestone to be sure, but still a milestone nonetheless. So we were celebrating last week by giving away copies of my brand new DVD, the Data DVD Volume 2, which represents every single podcast episode, every interview, every video, and every article created by myself for CorbettReport.com in the year 2009, almost six gigabytes of data. And the first uh, shipment of that is shipping out today. So thank you to all of those people who got their order in on the weekend. Once again, without your support in this endeavor, I couldn't do it without you. I would like to once again stress that none of the information that is on this DVD could is behind a paywall of any kind. You can download it freely from the website if you want it all in one handy location on a disc and to support this independent alternative media while you're at it, then your support is appreciated and you can find out how to buy your own copy of the DVD through the link at CorbettReport.com and once again, as a reminder, there is a 25% discount for subscribers in each and every newsletter, and the newsletter goes out once a week. Once again, details at CorbettReport.com support. And uh, this week's uh, newsletter also includes a subscriber-only video, including some footage of my trip to the Roman Colosseum. So that might be a little interest uh, bo- added bonus for some of you out there. But at any rate, let's move along. I just had one piece of information I wanted to pass along before we start into today's episode, and that is related to the most recent interview posted to the Interviews tab at CorbettReport.com, interview 514 with William Hathaway on Radical Peace, a very interesting conversation that went in a direction I was not necessarily expecting, but I think quite fascinating nonetheless, or perhaps because of that. However, when I originally posted that conversation, it was uh, mysteriously truncated. The last few minutes were just chopped off at the end, and I didn't notice it at the time I posted it. Thankfully, some of the listeners got in touch through the contact form on CorbettReport.com, so I have re-edited that and added the last few minutes of that conversation. So it is now up in its entirety. If you had originally downloaded that truncated version of the interview, please go back and re-download the interview so you can listen to the last few minutes and see how that conversation wraps up. Once again, I think it's a particularly interesting interview that goes off in unexpected directions, so I do uh, recommend that you do check it out if you have not yet done so, and make sure you are downloading the most recent version. And on that note, yes, I am fallible, I am human, I do make mistakes, and as some of you have noticed over the past week, I've made a few of them. Perhaps uh, I'll just put it up to jet lag. But yes, I am posting everything to the website myself, so sometimes snafus like that do crop up, and I do do my best to uh, to make sure that doesn't happen, but when it does, I really do rely on your support out there to point it out and to uh, send that those uh, emails in to let me know. So once again, thank you to those eagle-eyed listeners out there, perhaps that's the wrong analogy, who pointed that out to me, and once again, all of your support in all of the myriad forms that it takes is appreciated, even if that's just to point out my mistakes. But having said all of that, it is great to be back, so let's get straight back into today's episode of the podcast. Welcome to episode 230 of The Corbett Report, Social Engineering 101. Physiology and psychology afford fields for scientific technique which still await development. Two great men, Pavlov and Freud, have laid the foundation. I do not accept the view that they are in any essential conflict, But what structure will be built on their foundations is still in doubt. I think the subject which will be of most importance politically is mass psychology. Its importance has been enormously increased by the growth of modern methods of propaganda. 
Of these, the most influential is what is called education. Religion plays a part, though a diminishing one. The press, the cinema, and the radio play an increasing part. It may be hoped that in time, anybody will be able to persuade anybody of anything if he can catch the patient young and is provided by the state with money and equipment. The subject will make great strides when it is taken up by scientists under a scientific dictatorship. The social psychologists of the future will have a number of classes of schoolchildren on whom they will try different methods of producing an unshakable conviction that snow is black. Various results will soon be arrived at. First, that the influence of home is obstructive. Second, that not much can be done unless indoctrination begins before the age of ten. Third, that verses set to music and repeatedly intoned are very effective. Fourth, that the opinion that snow is white must be held to show a morbid taste for eccentricity. But I anticipate. It is for future scientists to make these maxims precise and discover exactly how much it costs per head to make children believe that snow is black, and how much less it would cost to make them believe it is dark gray. Although this science will be diligently studied, it will be rigidly confined to the governing class. The populace will not be allowed to know how its convictions were generated. When the technique has been perfected, every government that has been in charge of education for a generation will be able to control its subjects securely without the need of armies or policemen. That quotation comes from Lord Bertrand Russell from his 1951 tome, The Impact of Science on Society, which in and of itself makes required reading for anyone interested in the study of social engineering and the techniques by which that process will be brought about. But those particular extracts come from a very interesting article that was published by the Schiller Institute at schillerinstitute.org in April of 2000 called From Cybernetics to Littleton, Techniques in Mind Control by Jeffrey Steinberg. And just as a side note, the Schiller Institute is one of the extensions of the LaRouche body of institutions that published the quarterly journal known as Fidelio, which may or may not be the key to the Roman Aclef, or perhaps the film Aclef, that is eyes wide shut for the Kubrick fans out there in the audience. But I progress. Now, I certainly hope that those quotations from Lord Bertrand Russell do give a sense of what social engineering is and what it's really aimed at. And for longtime listeners of The Corbett Report, this will be a topic that will be uh, not very strange or unfamiliar to you, as we've covered it time and again throughout the podcast and interviews and radio shows, etc. And for those who have not yet encountered that work, I would direct you, for example, back to such episodes of the podcast as episode 166, in which we listened to the documentary Human Resources, Social Engineering in the 20th Century in its entirety. Or you could take a listen to episode 167 of this podcast, Social Engineering and You. Or in, on a slightly more hopeful and helpful note, perhaps, Corbett Report Radio number 119, which aired on the 26th of April 2012, Your Slavery is Over, If You Want It, also touched on these ideas of social engineering. Now, given how often we have explored this concept in the past at CorbettReport.com, you might be wondering to yourself what it is that this particular episode hopes to add to that body of work. And I would say that's a very good question, because certainly we shouldn't embark on a project without knowing what we're attempting to achieve. So let's set out the goal for today's podcast right here. Well, this idea for this podcast strikes me as particularly important, as not only is this obviously a subject of ex extreme significance for those who are interested in the direction that society is heading, which I imagine all of you listening to The Corbett Report are, but it's also particularly important at this juncture as, once again, this term has become co-opted in a way by a community that is using it in a very different manner and which may, well, muddy the waters, so to speak, for those who are interested in learning more about the subject. And I don't believe this is intentionally done, but it is interesting nonetheless that nowadays when you type social engineering into your startpage.com or search engine of, of, of choice, 
you will more than likely find a number of entries related to the hacking technique known as social engineering, by which hackers can seek to gain access to a given computer system by targeting individuals within the, the organization that is being targeted, and they can attempt to pass themselves off as people that they're not, etc., in order to get information that they can then use to hack into those computer systems. This goes by the name of social engineering in the hacker world, and it, well, it predominates searches for social engineering these days, so I find that particularly interesting. And in an attempt to, once again, weigh the scales back to the other side, where we're not talking about that form of social engineering, we're talking about what I think is the much more important idea of social engineering, which is that a very few elite at the very top are directing society in a particular direction through the control of the education system, and they are really trying to engineer an entire generation to grow up to believe whatever it is they want to believe, uh, even so far as to believe that snow is black. A very interesting example given there by Lord Bertrand Russell, and once again, this isn't coming from myself or any kooky conspiracy theorists out there. It is coming from a very lauded and noted 20th century intellectual. So it is something to be taken very, very seriously, because I think we can all understand, even if we are on board with such an agenda, which I certainly am not, but even if you are, I think we can all understand just how important this agenda is to our future as a species. So today on the podcast, what I want to fill in is not only the uh, the really bigger, bigger picture, as it were, about social engineering and what the real roots of this idea and this ideology are, where this agenda comes from and where it is ultimately heading, but also to look drill down really to the nitty-gritty detail of the tiny details of how individual habits and ideas can be manipulated at the societal level in order to get an entire generation, an entire society of people working towards the same goal without even necessarily realizing it. So those are kind of the two opposite ends of the spectrum, the very, very big picture and the very, very tiny details. And I think they're both very important and can be neglected in an overview of this topic, which tends to really focus on on the idea of social engineering itself. Well, I think we've got that under our belt, so let's really start to flesh this out in some much, much greater detail and with a much, much bigger scope. So if all of that sounds like too much to uh, to bite off and chew in one one-hour podcast episode, well, then it wouldn't be the Corbett Report without doing a little bit of that, would it? So let's start today by taking a look at a very interesting interview that was conducted with Philip Collins, one half of the brotherly duo of Philip and Paul Collins, who are the authors of The Ascendancy of the Scientific Dictatorship, an Examination of Epistemic Autocracy from the 19th to the 21st Century. A very interesting read in and of itself, and these two brothers were the subjects of an interview on CorbettReport.com back in 2008. It's interview 34, for those of you who want to go back and listen to that. Unfortunately, the recording quality of that interview was, leaves quite a bit to be desired, so we'll have to get them back on to flesh out the subject in greater detail. But until then, we're going to listen to a small part of a very fascinating and wide-ranging interview from April of 2006 with Philip Collins on the subject of social control. This was published by The Byte Show at thebyteshow.com, so of course the link to the entire interview, which I trust you will definitely want to listen to, will be in the show notes for today's episode at corbettreport.com. But for now, let's listen to this excerpt from that interview where Philip Collins talks about what epistemic autocracy is and what the real roots of this social engineering agenda are. Now, what is epistemic oh. autocracy? Okay, epistemic autocracy. Epistemic, yeah, okay. Epistemic is derived from the Greek word episme, which means knowledge. And of course, an autocracy is the rule of one, or the rule of, you know, one arbitrary ruler. And in the instance of the 20th century, we have been ruled by one particular variety of, of epistemology, we, what's known as uh, empiricism, which is basically sense certainty. Um, you only believe that which you see, and uh, science is pretty much governed under the uh, doctrine of sense certainty. This doctrine endorsed as um, 
as a legitimate, objective, scientific observation. It amounts to an occult doctrine that's been recycled from 6,000 years ago. And if you look at it, if you examine it philosophically, for instance, empirical observation by itself cannot produce any absolute conclusions. This was determined by a radical empiricist, David Hume. Uh, David Hume showed that uh, y while you can prove what's known as temporal succession, or one event happening after another, and you can you can show you can show that juxtaposition of events, and you can also uh, show what's known as spatial proximity, or two uh, events or phenomena in the immediate proximity of each other. You can you can show these things, but you cannot prove that there's any causal connection between the two. So really, all uh, the results of scientific research, according to this criteria, would rest upon faith, and that is more of a mystical institution than it, it than it is a secular one. So. Really, this epistemic autocracy, as, as my uh, brother and I call it, is really premised upon cult beliefs and uh, 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 mysticism every bit as much as the old theocratic uh, orders that preceded it. But epistemic autocracy basically began with the British Royal Society. This organization was formed under a royal warrant from Charles II in 1662. Ostensibly, the organization was devoted to scientific research and the broadening of human knowledge. Uh, however, a darker agenda takes shape when one examines the esoteric heritage of the group's members. Virtually all of the founding members were Freemasons. And uh, Freemasonry is a secret society that adheres to an ancient occult tradition dating back roughly 6,000 years. And that tradition is the religion of the uh, ancient mystery cults. The uh, mystery religion originated in Mesopotamia, particularly in Babylon and Egypt. And it was uh, introduced to the East by the Aryans of Persia and provided the foundation of all the uh, Eastern religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, etc. And it also provided theological foundations for Judaic and Christian heresy, the uh, religions that would basically distort and pervert uh, Judaism and Christianity, specifically Kabbalism and Gnosticism. But um, the religion's mythology, in a nutshell, the mystery religion's mythology is as follows. It, it basically holds that in the beginning, all human consciousness was encapsulated within a singularity, and this singularity has been assigned numerous appellations. The Freemasons, for instance, the uh, book, The Meaning of Masonry, which is by a Masonic scholar, W.M. Wilmshurst, he calls it the group soul or collective soul. H.G. Uh, Wells, who has been alleged to have been a Freemason and, a, of course, was also a Fabian socialist, a member of the uh, Coefficients Club, and closely associated with members of the British Roundtable organizations, which would form the Royal Institute of International Affairs and eventually form a stateside branch here in the United States known as the Council on Foreign Relations. H.G. Wells called this singularity the mind of the race or the racial mind. But at any rate, this singularity constituted, according to the myth, God. And at some indeterminate point of time, the myth alleges that this singularity divided into a plurality. You'll notice that this myth kind of mirrors or attempts to mirror account of the fall of humanity in Eden. However, there are some very, very different elements. It kind of distorts the original Eden account of humanity's fall. Because uh, essentially, it's not sin that, that results in the uh, fall of man. It's a diaspora of consciousness into several uh, individual entities. In other words, it's when you and I become individuated from the group soul, from the collective soul. But at any rate, the myth portrays man as a god in the process of becoming. And at the uh, point of apotheosis, or the point at which man becomes god, individuality is obliterated and the collective is acknowledged as supreme reality. This new man is spelled with a capital M, man with a capital M, to connote uh, purport humanity's purported divinity. 
has been pre presented by uh, numerous ideologues throughout history. Hitler called him the Aryan. Nietzsche, who was the philosophical progenitor of Hitler, called him the Ubermensch. In uh, communist Russia, he was called the uh, Soviet man. Despite the cultural variations and modifications, the myth remains universal. In the uh, meaning of uh, masonry, we learn what the chief facilitator for humanity's apotheosis purported ascent to becoming God is. I'll read you an excerpt. This is what Wilmhurst, W.M. Wilmhurst, a Masonic scholar, says, quote, this. The evolution of man into Superman was always the purpose of the ancient mysteries, and the real purpose of modern masonry is not the social and charitable purposes to which so much attention is paid, but the expediting of spiritual evolution of those who aspire to perfect their own nature and transform it into a more godlike quality, unquote. Essentially, that's what the uh, masons that formed the British Royal Society were that this was the doctrine that they promoted and promulgated. They promulgated it under numerous appellations and numerous forms. Well, it's uh, still, you know, it, it, regardless of the face they put on it, it's the old satanic stuff. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But if you notice, uh, he uses the word, he uses the term there, evolution. This occult process of becoming is evolutionary in character. Yeah. And that is interesting because long before Charles Darwin even wrote on the origin of the species, evolutionary theory was the intellectual property of the Masonic Lodge. Oh. Evolution actually finds its uh, spiritual correlative in the Hindu doctrine of reincarnation, which was imported to England by the British East India Company, and subsequently it was adopted by the Royal Society, which was uh, composed of all Freemasons. Uh, John Locke, who was a Freemason and a member of the Royal Society, proceeded to refine the Hindu doctrine within the context of metaphysical naturalism, and the result was a precursory theory of evolution that received the support of the male members of Darwin's family. But a little later, Erasmus Darwin, Charles's grandfather, and a Freemason followed Locke's lead and delineated his own personal theory of evolution in a book entitled Zoonomia. Erasmus was also a founder of the Lunar Society, which was the organizational precursor to the British Royal Society. And an interesting little tidbit about the Lunar Society was that many of its members were supporters or, e or even intimately involved in the French Revolution. And Erasmus Darwin himself was a vocal supporter of the radical Jacobins. And the uh, Jacobins basically found, find their origins with infamous organization formed by Adam Weishaupt known as the Illuminati. But at any rate, the Lunar Society eventually kind of dissolved and then returned as Royal Society, which would promote the work of Erasmus's son, Charles, whose uh, evolutionary ideas were premised upon the theories that Erasmus had presented in Zoonomia. Darwinism cribbed liberally from many of the ancient occult doctrines comprising the mystery religion. Its concept, for instance, of spontaneous generation is derivative of the Kabbalistic concept of the Golem, which asserts that life can be derived from a lifeless matter. Um, Darwinism's concept of progressive biological development is essentially reincarnation extrapolated into the realm of metaphysical naturalism. The Darwinian notion of a perfected species is simply stated the apotheosized God-man heralded by the occult doctrine of becoming. This has been the uh, science that has uh, governed the majority of the 20th century. And it's the science that most socialist totalitarian regimes like Nazi Germany, like communist Russia, has been premised on. It's uh, been the uh, guiding it's been the guiding inspiration of, of, of socio-political utopianism and, and what uh, amounts to really uh, secular Gnosticism. Well, that was an excerpt and a half now, wasn't it? Well, if you are feeling a bit overwhelmed by the amount of information and uh, terminology thrown out in that excerpt from that interview, well, don't worry, you're not alone. I think if you go back and listen uh, another time or even two or three more times, you 
might be able to start wrapping your head around some of the uh, the concepts. There is quite a lot to take in. And certainly, once again, I will direct you to the full interview, which, again, is similarly wide in scope, but contains fascinating information and insights into this bigger agenda of social control and what's really behind it. And I think, if anything, that uh, certainly sounds like an incredibly sweeping overview of this subject to the extent that it might even be difficult to really bring that back down to the level of everyday reality to see how that type of uh, that epistemic autocracy of empiricism, the uh, 6,000-year-old occultic agenda there that, uh, that manifests itself in an evolutionary theory that at base is about the apotheosis of man, how that all reflects in our day-to-day reality. But uh, if all of that sounds sweeping and grandiose, well, let's follow that up with a very sweeping and grandiose video which appeared earlier this year from something called the Global Future 2045 Congress. Congress that I think puts this agenda and this empiricism epistemic autocracy in perspective to see where this is all taking us. The world is on the verge of global change. The speed of data transmission has increased by multiples of millions. The rate of globally significant events and that of discoveries and crises is growing exponentially. Our civilization is like an uncaptained ship sailing on rough seas with neither chart nor compass, all the while moving faster and faster. The time we have to make the right decisions is shorter and shorter. We are facing the choice to fall into a new dark age, into affliction and degradation, or to find a new model for human development and create not simply a new civilization, but a new mankind. Historic crises show that to break the deadlock, we need technological revolution. It is clear that today's revolution will also require the deepest social transformation. The world's community and leaders should encourage mankind instead of wasting resources on solving momentary problems. To focus on the technologies of the future, nanotechnology, biotechnology, information technology, cognitive technology, genetics and robotics. Doing so will allow us to find new sources of energy, create fundamentally new architecture and transportation, allow unprecedented developments of human cognitive abilities, refine artificial intelligences and brain-computer interfaces, simulate complex systems, create humanoid robots and cyborgs, and with the help of nanorobots, we may develop manageable matter. Find ways to transfer one's personality to an artificial carrier. Yet what we need is not just another technological revolution, but a new civilizational paradigm. We need new philosophy and ideology, new ethics, new culture and new psychology, and even new metaphysics. We must reset our limits, go beyond ourselves, beyond the Earth and beyond the solar system. This is an adequate response to the challenges of our time. Thus, new reality and future man will arise. Could it happen spontaneously, by itself? Unlikely. Humanity does not have a master plan of its development. It seeks stability. It lives in the present and does not plan. It preserves the status quo and tries to escape development. It does not tend to map future centuries and take responsibility for evolution. In consumer society's culture, there is no evolutionary vocabulary and rhetoric. To break the deadlock, the Russia 2045 movement was founded. It is a mega-project intended to reach new heights and meanings. We intend to create a new vector for civilization, aimed at constant human development and evolution. As happened with the mega-projects of the last century, the nuclear and the space programs, we integrate the latest discoveries and developments from the sciences physics, energetics, aeronautics, bioengineering, nanotechnology, neurology, cybernetics, cognitive science. May everlasting spiritual ideals and values help us avoid going astray. Our project will give new meanings to the millions of people on Earth, will become a result of their joint creativity, and will lead us out of the impasse. Away from the murder of nature and physical death, forward to the realm of freedom and creativity, to the depths of the ocean and to the stars, to the infinite universe of our inner world. Our forecast for the next 40 years, 
February 2012, Global Future 2045 Congress is held in Moscow. It is a debate platform for discussion of our civilization's prospects for development. 2012 to 2013, the global economic and social crises are exacerbated. The debates on the global paradigm of future development intensifies. New transhumanist movements and parties emerge. Russia 2045 transforms into World 2045. Simultaneously, the 2045.com International Social Network for Open Innovation is expanding. Here, anyone interested may propose a project, take part in working on it, or fund it, or both. In the network, there are scientists, scholars, researchers, financiers, and managers. 2013 to 2014, new centers working on cybernetic technologies for the development of radical life extension rise. The race for immortality starts. 2015 to 2020, the avatar is created. A robotic human copy controlled by thought via brain-computer interface. It becomes as popular as a car. In Russia and in the world appear, in testing mode, several breakthrough projects. Android robots to replace people in manufacturing tasks. Android robot servants for every home. Thought-controlled avatars to provide telepresence in any place of the world and abolish the need for business trips. Flying cars. Thought-driven mobile communications built into the body or sprayed onto the skin. 2020 to 2025. An autonomous system providing life support for the brain and allowing it interaction with the environment is created. The brain is transplanted into an avatar B. With Avatar B, man receives new, expanded life. 2025, the new generation of avatars provides complete transmission of sensations from all five sensory robot organs to the operator. 2030 to 2035, ReBrain. The colossal project of brain reverse engineering is implemented. World science comes very close to understanding the principles of consciousness. 2035, the first successful attempt to transfer one's personality to an alternative carrier. The epoch of cybernetic immortality begins. 2040 to 2050, bodies made of nanorobots that can take any shape arise alongside hologram bodies. 2045 to 2050, drastic changes in social structure and in scientific and technological development. All the prerequisites for space expansion are established. For the man of the future, war and violence are unacceptable. The main priority of his development is spiritual self-improvement. A new era dawns. The era of neo-humanity. Oh my. Yes, well, if all of this seems familiar as that transhumanist ideal that we've been attempting to expose here on the podcast for many years, then I think you have been paying attention, so give yourself a pat on the back. Very, very worrying stuff indeed, especially worrying that so many people will embrace this without thinking at all about who is directing this transformation of humanity itself and to what end. But some background on this group, the Global Future 2045 group, can be garnered at their website, gf2045.com, which I suggest you explore for some more background about what this group has produced in the past and the types of conferences they hold. But perhaps the, uh, the best overview of this can be garnered from a very recent article from Infowars.com by Aaron Dykes. United Nations Envisions Transhumanist Future Where Man is Obsolete, which I think gives a good overview of what this is really all about. Although I would, I guess, quibble with the Appalachian United Nations. As far as I know, this Global Future 2045 group is not themselves affiliated with the United Nations other than that they will uh, submit a draft of their resolution to the United Nations uh, to demand implementation of their transhumanist ideal of this life extension nanobot avatar technology to merge man with machine and populate the heavens or something along those lines and once again perhaps you would best be served by going and watching the video that is that accompanies that audio so that you get a better idea of what it is they're they're envisioning in a visual sense 
And uh, if anyone is not creeped out at least a little bit by this type of video, I think you're probably just not paying attention. And certainly I think my listeners will be well situated to understand what's really being proposed here. It is not the utopia that they're talking about. It is really a nightmare for humanity and a nightmare that is predicated once again on the very small ruling elite that Lord Bertrand Russell himself and many, many others besides were writing about, as we pointed out at the top of today's podcast, and uh, that uh, they uh, have fully and openly admitted exist, as, of course, Aldous Huxley did in his famous 1961 speech on the ultimate revolution, or the final revolution, I should say, in which he talked about the ruling elite who have always existed and presumably always will, and how they are using technology to implement a further and more perfect control over humanity and uh, to direct humanity in the direction they wish. And this is really what they have in mind for their totalitarian world government and their version of the apotheosis of man that uh, Philip Collins was talking about earlier, in which uh, it is not the perfection of man, as in uh, overcoming all obstacles and, and perpetuating the species into the heavens so that we can all share in a peace and happiness, so much as it is making sure that there is a servile class that will be at the whim of the ruling elite and that uh, the ruling elite will be the ones to propagate themselves into the heavens and with their uh, their exoskeleton shells or whatever it is they're planning. And once again, it sounds ridiculous. It sounds like the type of thing you would laugh at. But again, it's not coming from myself or from the kooky conspiracy theorists. It's coming from organizations like this GF2045, which includes such famed innovators and scientists as Ray Kurzweil. Surprise, surprise. So once again, check it out for yourself and don't take my word for it. But these are the types of people who are truly planning, scheming, crafting, and attempting to become those rulers of humanity that are uh, really at the base of this agenda, this agenda for complete social control. Now, to be sure, it is a very, very long way to go between our current lived reality and that vision of the future of downloading our brains into these cybernetic organisms and all of that future fantasy of the transhumanist movement, then I think it is the sheer size of that gap between what we see around us today and what we are envisioning for the future, or at least some of the elite out there are envisioning for the future, it is the size of that gap which presents the the incredulity gap, as it were, for so much of the public out there that doesn't even want to begin thinking about this information and can easily dismiss it by saying, well, that's just sci-fi fantasy, that's so far out there, and that's talking about things that will never happen. And it doesn't necessarily matter how much evidence you present that not only is it uh, likely to happen, it is already happening. There are people out there who will simply dismiss it, even as they take one step uh, per, by one step into that vision of the future by starting to get on to the, uh, the 4G mobile completely immersive world where everything will start to become more and more a virtual reality even as it's being lived. Well, anyway, as I say, the uh, the difference between that 20 or 30 or 40 years in the future outcome versus what we're living through right at the moment presents something of an incredulity gap by which many people will not even bother to look at this information. And they want to know more how this affects us on an everyday level. So it is important to take a look at the nitty gritty detail of social engineering and how it can actually be accomplished step by step quite literally, in this case, in fact, because I'm going to uh, direct your attention to a video, and I won't bother to play the audio because there's really nothing of substance that you can hear, but it's called Piano Stairs, and it's by thefuntheory.com, and it is a very innocuous and perhaps even, well, a laudable idea that's put together by our good friends at Volkswagen because they love you so much, and uh, it's the uh, Führer's car, so they must be working for the good of humanity. And they have a site called thefuntheory.com, which posits uh, different ways of trying to get people to do things that are good for them by making them fun instead of uh, seem to be a chore. So in Piano Stairs, you can see how Volkswagen, sponsoring the Fun Theory, has created uh, this staircase uh, in Europe, where uh, in Stockholm, where there's a staircase next to an escalator. And when the staircase is a staircase, most people, in fact, almost everyone takes the escalator because it's easier to do. They're side by side and uh, the people can either walk up the stairs or they can take the escalator. So, of course, they're going to take the escalator. It's just easier to do. So the idea is how do you get people to change their behavior? How do you get them to take the stairs and thus 
do a little bit of exercise and uh, and it's, it is something that's that's good for them in the end so how do you make them do that more often without any coercion or without any overt advertising campaign or anything of that sort well on the fun theory they take these types of things as little challenges so they they decided to make this staircase into a piano so that every time you walk on one of the stairs it makes a note and it's like i guess that scene from uh, big with tom hanks that we can all harken back to i'm sure in our childhood or earlier adulthood and uh, yes, it, it makes it fun to walk up the stairs because you can make a little song as you do so. And uh, so I'll let you watch that video for yourself. And it's an interesting little idea. And certainly uh, one can see quite obviously how uh, people can be enticed into taking the staircase instead of using the escalators simply by making it fun to take the staircase. And isn't that a good thing in the end? Well, this is the very, very nitty, tiny, gritty detail of social engineering, and this is a very, very tiny example to be sure, and one that is quite innocuous. In fact, it's almost laudable. Well, certainly, yes, uh, people should probably take the stairs if they can. It's better for them. Why not? And uh, if, if they can be made to do so simply by making it fun, and if it's sponsored by a loving, wonderful, benevolent corporation like Volkswagen, well, then it must be all for the good of humanity. And uh, unfortunately, though, of course, as we have charted out in this podcast in the past, that is perhaps the beginning of a slippery slope indeed, down to the, uh, the detail of episode 145 of this podcast, You Are Being Gamed, where we listen to that bone-chilling presentation, the most disturbing presentation ever, which envisioned that every aspect of our daily life may one day be a type of game and we will be constantly trying to earn points to earn rewards or uh, to save money or to even get tax benefits or whatever the case may be and in these tiny little games you might get points for brushing your teeth etc and everything will become a type of game and this type of fun theory will be used to engineer micro engineer every single facet of our life and uh, it's very interesting to see how the piano stairs idea can really start to become something somewhat almost menacing when you start to take it to that extent. Of course, this is very much the idea of a more of an Aldous Huxleyan Brave New World type of, uh, of future autocratic society where it seems to be all fun and games and happiness and no one's really being coerced to do anything at the point of a gun, so it must be a good thing. Well, I suppose there is that argument to be made and to be had, but at any rate, let's start to take a look at some more examples of how people can be micro-engineered through the manipulation of their habits. And once again, let's hearken back to Edward Bernays, nephew of... Uh, uh, of Sigmund Freud, who, of course, wrote the book, literally wrote the book on propaganda called Propaganda from 1928, and let us once again hearken to the very, very opening sentences of that book. Chapter 1, Organizing Chaos, quote, The conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government which is the true ruling power of our country, end quote. So once again, I will urge you to read through propaganda to see how Edward Bernays tackled that problem of organizing the habits and opinions of the masses, certainly a dream of any truly would-be dictator in this day and age. And let's see how that works in some other contexts. And for that, we're going to switch over to episode 51 of the Peace Revolution podcast at peacerevolution.org, wherein our old friend Richard Grove presented a very interesting clip of Peg Luxick called Who Controls Our Children? How Public Schools Dumb Down Kids. And it is a very interesting glimpse into how social engineering takes place at an institutional level, of course, in the context of the education system that Lord Bertrand Russell was talking about at the beginning of this podcast. And in this clip, well, she draws on an analogy from the corporate sales world, surprise, surprise, to talk about how this dumbing down can take place and, in fact, is taking place. So let's listen to this fascinating clip. When I began the process, I just didn't like the regulations because I thought, well, they're kind of nebulous and they don't make a lot of sense. And when we started investigating, what we found is that the plan is really very organized and very well put together. 
the plan is to move education away from what we have right now, which is traditional education. That's, you have so many Carnegie units, you had four classes of math and four classes of English and so many classes of history to graduate, to what is called outcome-based education. Outcome-based education says that the, the student must demonstrate something in order to meet the goal and be promoted or graduate. In the traditional system, said this is an A, this is a B, this is a C, this is a D, this is an E, and you fit wherever you fit. Now you had so much time in order to do that, so you know you had 180 days, and then the achievement went up or down according to that. In outcome-based education, the, the theory is everybody gets an A or everybody gets a B, and however long it takes you to get there is okay. If you can get there in three days, then you graduate in three days. If it takes you ten years, then you graduate in ten years. Everything rides on the goals and on meeting the goals. So instead of saying the schools will teach, the theory now is the student will demonstrate it. So it's a major shift in the way we look at education. In order to understand that, I want you to think of a telephone salesman. Have you ever gotten a, call, a telephone call from a telephone salesman? You pick up the phone and the salesman says, hi. Um, he asks you three or four questions. I'm selling purple shoes tonight, so I want to know, are you a shoe owner? And you say yes or no. And I say, do you like the color purple? And you say yes or no. Uh, do you buy your own shoes, or does your husband buy your shoes, or your wife buy your shoes, or your children buy your shoes, or does some other person buy your shoes for you? And you say yes or no. That's my pretest. I have just established the baseline data. Now I know where you are, so I can begin teaching you about why you need purple shoes. That's the pretest. Now that I've established that I'm going to do my sales pitch and I'm going to give you 10 reasons why you really, really need purple shoes and you're going to, you can't live without them and you want them. That's the curriculum. I have taught you something. I'm done now. Would you like to put that, Mrs. Smith, on your visa or on your MasterCard? That's the post-test. I am assessing you to see if you have met my goal or not. My goal is that you're going to buy my shoes. You say, put it on my visa. You have met the goal. I'm going to say thank you very much, and you may graduate from this conversation, and I'm going to hang up. You say, no, you have not met the goal. I am going to say, um, well, why not? What is your objection? And you're going to tell me, and I am going to remediate you. I'm going to put you through another sales pitch to make you want my purple shoes. That's remediation. You're going to walk that loop with me one more time and at the end of the remediation I'm going to say, should I put this on your visa or your MasterCard? I'm testing you again. That's a reassessment. If you say, yes, you have met the goal, you may graduate from the conversation and I'm going to hang up. If you say, no, I'm going to say, what is your objection? And I'm going to remediate you again and test you again. Now, if you would stay on the phone indefinitely, I would keep making you walk that remediation loop until you finally said, yes, you're going to buy my shoes, until you meet the goal. However, in a telephone sales call, you can say, excuse me, I've been remediated enough, I'm never meeting your goal, and you can hang up the phone. A child in a classroom cannot hang up the phone. They are going to be remediated again and again and again and again until they meet the goal. That's outcome-based education. Everything rests on the goals. That's the ladder that everything rests on. So when I started getting involved way back in the fall, I looked at the goal because that's what everything rests on. I thought I'd find geography, history, spelling, reading. I found adaptability to change, ethical judgment, self-esteem, family living, proper environmental attitudes, understanding and appreciating others. And I went and met with Mr. Fear, who's the executive director of the State Board of Education in Pennsylvania, and I said, where did you get these? And with every goal, there was a list of exit outcomes. That's the specific behaviors that the child has to demonstrate in order to prove that they met the goal. The child just can't say, I met the goal, I understand others, isn't that great? The child has a list of behaviors that they have to demonstrate in order to prove that they met the goal. So I said to Mr. Fear, well, where'd you get the goals? 
and where did you get these, these exit outcomes? Where did they come from? And he said, oh, we had committees meet all over the state. And we brought together teachers and parents and, and other groups, and we got together and had consensus forming, and we reevaluated them and redid them, and they came up with over 500 student learning outcomes. And I said, well, okay, what did they base it on? He said, oh, nothing. We developed these specifically for Pennsylvania. I said, well, you mean when they went in and sat down, the table was empty? Oh, no, no. I said, well, what was on the table? Connecticut's goal. Oh, okay. So I wrote to Connecticut and said to Connecticut, would you please send me your goals? And Connecticut did send me their goals. And I sat down, and Connecticut's goals and Pennsylvania's goals were the same goals. Word for word, the same goals. Since then, we've gotten the goals from 26 different states. And this just gives you a little overview of what some of those exit outcomes are and how close they were. All students understand and appreciate their worth as unique and capable individuals and exhibit self-esteem. That's Pennsylvania's. Connecticut's. Each student should be able to appreciate his or her worth as a unique and capable individual and exhibit self-esteem. Does that sound familiar? You can take all the student learning outcomes and match them up. It doesn't matter what state you're in. It doesn't matter whose outcomes you're looking at. If you strip the names of the states, you can't tell whose are whose. Now, the other states, they passed their goals and their exit outcomes on the first go-around. Pennsylvania, because of the involvement of parents like you and me and other ones across the state, have been forced to rewrite their student learning outcomes seven times now. Some of these are from the first set that began, was first published in September. They published another set on March the 11th. That set included student learning outcomes that said that our children would exhibit the proper attitudes to live in the American constitutional democracy. We don't have a constitutional democracy. We have a democratic republic. The State Board of Education got the form of government wrong. So I went on the radio in Harrisburg and said the State Board of Education doesn't know what their government is, much less what attitudes you need to live in it. So they rewrote those learning outcomes on March the 12th. That set lasted 24 hours. They're in their seventh rewrite now of student learning outcomes, and really, they haven't changed a bit. They've combined some, they've rearranged some, they've reorganized some, but the exit outcomes are still the same. Once again, Peg Luxick talking about who controls our children, i.e. the outcome-based system of education that has replaced traditional education over the last several decades. And it is interesting to note, if you go and watch that video, certainly that video is, uh, I'm not exactly sure how old, but I would venture to say at least 30 years old, or at least 20 years old, probably older than that. So this is something that has been demonstrably going on for quite a while now and is obviously uh, starting to bear fruit in the generation that has been raised in such an education system with these outcome-based models. And it's very interesting that she hinged her example there on the telemarketing example and how a salesman would go through and, and assign a curriculum for someone to make them uh, understand that they need to buy this company's purple shoes or what have you. Of course, the, uh, the corporate example is interesting there because certainly the types of manipulations and tricks that can work on a classroom of students are the same that can then be used to, uh, to go out and sell to those same classroom of students later on in their lives, often without even really them realizing that they are involved in a sales pitch. And of course, that is always the most effective form of sales pitch, isn't it? So this is an extremely important bedrock issue. And just another example of how social engineering can take place on such a mass scale at such a bedrock institutional level and can come to really pervade an entire society while the parents who would otherwise be interested in their children's education and how that's proceeding can be basically just uh, just put up, put off to sleep and no, oh, don't worry, don't don't worry about your children's education. The state's taking care of it. Well, we all know where that's leading everyone, unfortunately, and it is towards that technocratic, epistemological, autocratic uh, view, vision of the future put out by Global Future 2045 and groups like that that want to see us all become, or not all become, these cybernetic robots, but of course only the elite few. 
the supermen who will reach the apotheosis, but I digress. Let's get back to this point. So we have taken a look at one very specific example of the type of social engineering that can take place at an educational institutional level in order to engineer a crop of students who will be more amenable to uh, to whatever really types of sales pitches and things that uh, that people want to put on them in the future. Of course, that's not the only outcome of this this outcome based education, but it is it is one of them, certainly, and I think not coincidentally so. But let's take a look at another, perhaps even more disturbing example of all of this and where it's heading, a much more recent example from our old friend, quote-unquote, Fareed Zakaria of of GPS on CNN. And uh, you will hearken back to the listening to the enemy episodes of this podcast in order to find out more about Fareed and some of the interesting guests he always has on. Well, let's take a listen to another interesting guest. This one was on the April 30th program from earlier this year. And in it, he, uh, Farid, is talking to an author who wrote a very interesting book about the science of habits and uh, how habits can be changed and manipulated and organized. Wow, where have I heard that before? So let's take a listen to this very recent example of how social engineering is proceeding apace. More than 40% of the actions people perform every day, that you perform every day, are not actually decisions you make but they are the product of habits. We like to think of habits as traits that can't be changed, but it turns out that habits are malleable. And knowing how to change them has profound implications not just at the personal level, but also for companies and governments. My next guest has a new book that explores this theme. Charles Duhigg is the author of The Power of Habit. He is a reporter for the New York Times. He joins me today. Thank you so much for having me. So tell the story of Alcoa. Um, Paul O'Neill, who later becomes Secretary of the Treasury, is CEO of Alcoa. And when he first comes in, Alcoa is not doing well at all. But he focuses on worker safety. Right, exactly. Why? And everyone expected him to focus on productivity and efficiency, but what he said was worker safety is his number one goal. And it's because he recognized that if you that there are these things that are called keystone habits within organizations. And if you can change this one habit, you set off a chain reaction. And that's exactly what happened within Alcoa. By focusing on worker safety, he actually transformed the entire organization. And within two years, they were the top performer in the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And you look at one of the things that goes on here is that people have more ability to change. They have more willpower than, than even than they think they have. That's exactly. In the last decade, our understanding of the science of habits has been completely transformed by neurological studies. And what we understand now is that every habit has these three components, a cue, a routine, and a reward. And that if you diagnose these cues and these rewards, you can begin changing automatic behaviors in ways that we never really thought were possible previously. So give me an example of, a, of a, what one would think of as a bad habit that you could change. So smoking is a great example, right? In the last decade, smoking rates have just plummeted in the United States. And part of the reason why is because we now understand why people smoke, that there's these cues, such as a time of day that triggers the behavior, but that more importantly, it's delivering a reward that nicotine actually gives you this energy. And so now interventions go in, and what they say is they say, don't just try and quit smoking, replace it with coffee, with exercise, with something that gives you that same reward. And we've seen an incredible decrease in the number of, uh, in the number of smoke, people smoking and their ability to quit. And when you, when you look at a company like Starbucks, it, it also tries to produce certain kinds of habits when dealing with for example, disgruntled customers. That's exactly right. One of the interesting things about Starbucks is that they have to sell customer service alongside that $4 latte. And, but they're dealing with an, a workforce that's often 17 years old, high school graduates. So they have to teach them these life skills. And what they do is they design specific habits to use in corporate settings. When an angry customer comes up, that's a cue for what they call the latte method, which is you listen and you thank them and you give them a free cup of coffee. And then the reward is that basically you solve this problem. They take decision-making out of the equation, they make the response automatic, and customer service productivity go up enormously. Uh, Target tried to measure uh, some, some of these issues. How did it do it? Well, Target has this really interesting project, as does most of corporate America, of intensely studying shoppers' habits. And Target actually used this to try and predict which women were pregnant by studying how their shopping habits changed. They got so good that they can essentially assign every woman who comes regularly through their doors a pregnancy prediction score and even estimate their due date within two weeks. Why is that important to, to shopping? Well, what Target knows is that when you go through a major life event, 
your habits change, even if you're not aware of it. If you get married, the type of coffee you change, you buy changes. If you get a divorce, the type of beer you buy changes. When you have a child, all of your shopping habits are up for grabs, even if you're not completely aware of it. Target knows if they can get the right coupon in your hand at the right time, you'll start buying from them. I suppose the fundamental question uh, is, can you change habits? Absolutely, absolutely. And that's the biggest insight that we have. And, it, we're t- and, and it's not just personal habits, it's also habits within companies, organizational habits, habits across societies. What we've learned in the last decade, particularly from neurological studies, is any habit can be changed. It doesn't matter how ingrained the behavior is, it doesn't matter how old the person is. If you can identify the cue and the reward and understand what's driving the behavior from a neurological perspective, the craving, then you can change that behavior. But you have to be deliberate about it. CEOs have to actually think about their organizational habits. They can't just kind of try and do it on the fly. And good CEOs, Jack Welch, Lou Gertzner, that when you talk to them, they talk about organizational habits and how important it is to get them right. What habit have you changed? Well, I've actually lost like 30 pounds since I started writing this book, and I'm training for the New York City Marathon now. So and, it's, and you attribute it to this? I do. I got to say, I mean, it sounds like I'm selling snake oil, but it's actually true. I'm an I'm a investigative reporter for the Times. I, I, I'm not given to, uh, to you know, fashion trends, but... If you understand the science, if you figure out how to take apart these habits, you can actually change your life in these really important ways. Best of luck on the marathon. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. (laughs) Hmm. Well, I certainly hope everyone picked up on that very interesting phrase, the science of habits and uh, and all of the neurological studies that that author is assuring us have been taking place in recent years to really start to peg down that science and really start to understand how people form their habits and how they can be manipulated even better, I suppose, because obviously, demonstrably, as we saw earlier in today's podcast, that very goal has been being worked towards at least since the 1950s when Bertrand Russell was writing. But of course, it even precedes that as we start to take a look at H.G. Wells and Aldous Huxley and all the other people who've been involved in this elite science for so long and that we've documented in previous editions of this podcast. But there it is. Certainly, it is certainly uh, continuing to this present day and will continue in the future as the scientific cast, which is funded, of course, by the foundations, which have been heavily involved in this agenda for decades, if not a century, are uh, continuing to do their research in more and more unique, subtle, and penetrating ways to try to understand how to manipulate the human organism and how to manipulate those habits, which will ultimately engineer society in one way or another. And I hope you were particularly paying attention to the really really bone-chillingly disturbing example of Target and the way it is literally targeting their customers. I think there's some... uh, That's more than just a name. I think it's a very apt uh, description of the company. Target is targeting their customers with all sorts of uh, reward bonus card programs that, of course, monitor everything that is being purchased. And, of course, that is all run through data filtering uh, systems that then can accurately predict women's due dates within two weeks. Uh, And this is something that's been written about in other publications and and things. So I would suggest you check more into that. It is not something that this guy is just talking about. It's something that is actually happening and probably shouldn't surprise any of us except for the boldness with which these companies pursue their social engineering agenda out in open view of everyone and how bold they are in collecting all of everyone's personal data, which in any age other than our own would have been seen to be the ultimate invasion of privacy and absolutely cause for revulsion, horror, and an instant boycott of such a company. But in our day and age, I guess it's just, wow, jolly gee whiz, wow. Can you believe they're doing all of that data collection? Wow, it must be uh, must be quite a thing to behold. Uh, even as Google is now admitting, oh yes, well, our executives did know completely about the, uh, the Wi-Fi stealing data from all of uh, the people that the Google Street View cars were driving past. But, uh, but don't worry about that. Yes, there will be criminal investigations now, but it'll probably just pass over and no one will think twice about it. Well, certainly all of this information is being plugged into incredibly sophisticated data mining software behind the scenes and we do know this we know things like the target uh, system for for example targeting customers to find out who's pregnant and who's not although of course that's not as far as that type of program goes and it goes much further through other things like google and 
well, who knows what else is out there. But this is only the beginning of what will be a nightmare future for humanity if we continue along this path of giving our data away and allowing the elites to have all of that data to use at their disposal to manipulate our habits and to understand us better like the lab rats that they think we are in this system where they want to literally engineer us into serviceable slaves for the elite ruling class. Again, this sounds like a uh, an amazingly sweeping, unbelievably grand agenda, and it is. And for anyone who has invested any time looking into it for themselves, you will already know that. The, Of course, at this point, the question for all of us must be, how do we escape this nightmare future? What is the way out? How do we combat against this social engineering? What is the answer? That, my friends, is an exceptionally good question. But I'm afraid we are out of time for this episode of the podcast. So in another two-part type episode of the podcast next week we will be addressing that question quite specifically and we will be taking a look at the i guess the cognitive armor that we can wear against this psychic attack in the manipulation of our habits and opinions which is the true battle that's taking place behind the scenes and has been for centuries so i hope you will join me then my friends it's going to be a very interesting podcast episode indeed and until then I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you so much for joining me for this episode of the Corbett Report podcast and asking you to join me again next week.